It's always a joy to gather with God's people on the Lord's Day, and uh, we welcome you again to Grace Church of Philly. Welcome those that are watching from different places around the world. Uh, this is Thanksgiving time, though as a believer, hopefully every day is Thanksgiving, but this is a good time of the year to give special focus on the things we're thankful for. I understand that it is Thanksgiving time in Cameroon also, which means that their uh, services are twice as long. Uh, I have preached there at Thanksgiving time and sat through the, the uh, train of people that would keep coming to bring their gifts. You know, they bring goats or they would bring bags of rice and they would just keep coming to bring gifts. It was a long, long service. We're not going to ask you to do that this morning, uh, though we will ask you to give at the end of the service. Psalm 100 this morning. It's a uh, beautiful psalm. It's the only psalm with the heading, a psalm of thanksgiving. As a child growing up in a Christian home, even though I was not a believer, uh, we were sort of forced to memorize a lot of Scripture, uh, which I'm thankful for now. So even if your kids resist it uh, early, uh, keep giving them the Word of God and fill their mind with the Word of God because they won't be able to escape it. And finally, thank God, it did catch up with me. But uh, as a child, this was one of the Psalms our family memorized. And uh, I have since then quoted it many times to myself. I've been encouraged by it. Uh, Interesting, though, in uh, 46 years of preaching, this is only the second time I've ever preached from this psalm. But it's a wonderful psalm at this time of Thanksgiving. Listen to it this morning. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. The opening phrase, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, sort of uh, contradicts, it flies in the face of the modern world in which we live. You know, some would say that one of the prevailing philosophies of our day is postmodernism. And one of the tenets of postmodernism is that what you believe about God is created culturally. So that depending on you know, where you were born, uh, what you were taught, what others believed, This is how you gained your concept of God. And if it's true to you, then it's true because that's your truth. Postmodernism 
says that there is no such thing as what they, they call it a meta-narrative. By meta-narrative, they mean that there is a grand story that everybody should believe, that there is an explanation for the world that is true for everyone. Postmodernism says there is no such thing, but the psalmist disagrees. He says all of the earth should make a joyful noise to the Lord. That wherever you are, whoever you are, however you were raised, that this covenant Lord who created the world, this covenant Lord who made himself known through the nation of Israel, this covenant Lord who eventually took on human flesh in the name of Jesus the Messiah and gave his life for you, This covenant Lord is to be praised in all of the earth. There is one Lord, one Savior for all people in all times, in all places. One day, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But today, as in the psalmist day, our call is to call the nations of the world. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. When I look at this piece of poetry, I understand that there are seven commands in this psalm. The center one being, know that the Lord, he is God. The first three commands, make a joyful noise, serve, come, are followed by the explanation that's given in verse 3, that know that the Lord, He is God. He made us. And then the three commands of verse 4, enter, give thanks, bless, are followed by the reason and explanation that is given in verse 5, because the Lord is faithful. He He is faithful to all generations. When I read this psalm, it's a psalm that calls us to be a thankful and a worshiping people. And in order to do that, in order to live a life of thankfulness and worship, we must, first of all, be grounded in our knowledge of God, in our relationship of God. The psalmist puts it this way, we must know that the Lord is God, in verse 3, and we must know that the Lord is good, in verse 5. These are two truths that this psalm hinges on, that really our life hinges on. This God, the God of Israel, This God, the God who became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, this God is God. And he is good, as he says in verse 5. Two profound truths that provide a foundation for a life of thankfulness and a life of worship to the Lord. The Lord is God. And when I think of that, And the Lord is good. And when I think of that, I must smile. I understand why that song we sang became so popular. He's a good, good father. 
that resonates with us because we want not only a father, we want a good father. And a, by good, the psalmist means he is perfect in every way. In verse 3, the psalmist explains what he means when he says that, that he is God. Notice the names that he uses to describe this one to whom we are to give thanks and worship. He says, the Lord, he is God. Or the Hebrew would say, Yahweh is Elohim. This covenant Lord in our English Bibles, it always distinguishes, as you know, that name for the covenant Lord, Yahweh, by capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This covenant Lord, this faithful God who comes into relationship with people and makes promises to them and keeps them. This covenant God, Lord, he says, is Elohim. He's not just a covenant-making God. He is the powerful one. He is the one who's above and beyond this created world. But even though he's above and beyond this created world, he enters this world. He becomes part of his own creation that he might redeem a people for his name. The call is to know him, which is not simply to learn more about who this covenant Lord is, which certainly you should do. You should read your Bible and come to understand God as he reveals himself, because the only way you know this covenant Lord is because of what he tells you about himself. There's no other way to know that. It won't come to you by osmosis. It won't come to you in a dream. It won't come to you because you have an amazing imagination. If you want to know him, then you must read his word and listen to what he tells you about himself. And by the way, that's true of all of us. We really never know each other unless we tell you who we are. What you see isn't necessarily what is there in the depth of the heart. Know that he is God. It's a call not just to know, but to discern, to observe, to worship. It's like Peter would say, keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is to treasure that knowledge and delight in that knowledge. Or as John Piper would say, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And we are only satisfied in him as we know who he is as he reveals himself. Notice the reason why he gives that we should know this powerful covenant-making God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Hebrew poetry is known for its parallel, parallelism. 
Normally, you have a line A and a line B, and line B expands on line A. But sometimes in the parallelism, you have line A that is explained by the next line A, and line B is parallel with the next line B. I just confused you. But it is he who made us is line A, and we are his. That's line B. We are his people, line A and the sheep of his pasture, line B. As I understand the parallelism parallelism here, we are his people, explains it is he, or relates to it is he who made us. He's telling us that this covenant Lord, this powerful one, is our creator, our redeemer, and consequently, we are his people. And by that, he doesn't, he's not simply referring to initial creation. Matter of fact, the language he uses is not the typical language of uh, Genesis chapter 1, the creation language of Genesis 1. The language here is really the language that I think refers back to the book of Exodus. When, when he is saying, you made us, you formed us, he is speaking as as, as for the nation of, of Israel, that chosen people of God in the old covenant, that God went to Egypt and rescued them and delivered them. And then he brought them to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, we read something like this. Then Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You created us as the people of God. We are your people. And it's very interesting in the new covenant when Jesus comes, who is what we call the quintessential Israelite. He is the perfect Jew. He is the only Jew who ever kept perfect covenant with God. And in that sense, he is the only Jew who has the right to inherit the promises of God, and he does that. And all of those who come to Jesus, who are in Jesus, who are part of that quintessential Jew, they inherit the promises of God. So Peter can write to you and me, to new covenant Christians, and he can say this in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Make a joyful noise. Why? 
because God made you his people by his mercy, by his grace. The B lines of those two lines of poetry tell us that we belong to him and we are shepherded by him. He not only possesses us, we are his possession, but he cares for us. This is the consequence of God's calling us and forming us as his people. He just does not leave us alone, but he cares for us. He claims us. We are his, and we are the sheep of his pasture. He is the good shepherd that always cares for his sheep. I have always found it striking at funerals that almost every little card, memory card they give you has Psalm 23 on it. Beautiful Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, the one constantly shepherding me. I shall not want. But not everybody can claim that. Jesus put it this way. He said, my sheep, hear my voice, and I know them, and I give unto them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will ever pluck them out of my hand. What a joy it is to know that he not only called me to be part of the people of God, but he cares for me. I belong to him. He is my shepherd. And that is why our hearts should be filled with thankfulness today. That is why we, we should find deep joy in worship because this powerful covenant-making God, this, this the Lord, Yahweh, who is Elohim, has made us a new creation in Christ And we can say, we can claim Psalm 23, the Lord is the one who is constantly shepherding me. But secondly, a thankful and worshiping people know that their God is always faithful to everyone who who, who believes. Jumping down to verse 5, the psalmist further explains what he means when he says, He is good. He says, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. His goodness. I mean, God can't help but be good. You and I work at it and we fail at it. But God in his very nature is Good. That's what describes him. I love the way Craig Beale, the apologist, puts it. He says, the person and the works of God are good. He is good in his generosity and kindness to all of creation. He is good in his unconditional love in Christ coming to die for sinners. He is good in his saving and special love to his elect people. He is good in giving sinners what they do not deserve and in not giving them what they do deserve. God is good. He goes on to say that God alone is good. 
In fact, good has no meaning or existence apart from God. He is neither subject to a standard that exists apart from him, nor arbitrary when he defines what is good. The person and works of God are the source and definition of all good. Good is that which conforms to his character and the will of God. Therefore, no higher standard than God exists by which goodness can be measured. God is good. And his goodness, he says, is seen in his affection toward us. His steadfast love endures forever. That powerful Hebrew word that speaks of God's faithful, steadfast love. His love endures forever. This was the love that before the world was created, Paul says in Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us unto the adoption of children. It was God's faithful love that made a plan that would include you in his eternal family. It was this magnificent love that was displayed on the cross where God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Or as Paul said, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or as the apostle John said, herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. His goodness is seen in his affection for us. His goodness is seen in all of his actions toward us. His faithfulness to all generations. That God yesterday was steadfast, reliable, and trustworthy. And when I woke woke up this morning, I could know that God is steadfast, reliable, and trustworthy. And with all of our concerns and maybe fears about tomorrow, we can be sure that God is always steadfast, reliable, trustworthy. I need to think of that often. I need to believe that. When life is tough when life is bad. I need to believe that God is always good. His love is always constant. His faithfulness is always reliable. I know psychologists would want you to believe that your image of God is totally reliant upon the kind of father that you and I had. Maybe you grew up having a mean father. Maybe he wasn't a believer, or maybe he was a Christian who wasn't walking with the Lord, and maybe he came home every night tired and couldn't handle the hyperactivity of kids. Perhaps he retreated to his garage, or he hid behind the newspaper, or he hung out at the local bar. He was grumpy and selfish and impatient and unfair. And maybe one day you were glad to get out of your house. But that is not our Father. Our Father is always good. 
His steadfast love endures forever. We do not learn about what kind of father God is by my father. And thankfully, I had a good father, but not a perfect father. But I do have a perfect father in God. God is good. He's good even if your father was bad. He's good if your finances are bad. He's good when your life is tough. He's good when you are suffering. He's good when you're betrayed and abandoned. He's good when sin overwhelms you and defeats you. He's good when death knocks at your door. In our loneliness, we must always believe that God is good and faithfulness. In our crying, in our suffering, in our despair, and in our defeat, we must always believe that God is good and faithful all the time. And we must believe that in all of our successes, in all of the good that we may experience in life, in those times of prosperity, of great health and strength, we must always remember that as good as life may be, God is a better good. And we must be satisfied in Him. There is no circumstance of life, no disappointment, no heartache that changes the reality that God is always the greatest good, always good, always loving his children, always faithful to his people. I don't know about you, but I'm often uncomfortable around moody people. By that I mean they're unpredictable. Their emotions are up and down, and you never quite know how they will respond, and so you have to be cautious how you speak to them, not knowing what mood they're in. And by the way, we can all be that way at times. But what a comfort to know that our God, this God who is good, He is always good. He is always loving. He is always faithful. He is never moody. He is never capricious. He is never mean. He is never rude. He is good. And if we believe that, that He is good, not only God, but He is good, then as a thankful and worshiping people, We should express that joy and invite others to share in knowing and enjoying and worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord. In the Hebrew vocabulary, thanksgiving is not only a disposition of the heart before God, but it is always a form of praise that is public. It is an acknowledgement of the goodness of God. I I read this psalm and I, I feel the emotions of thanksgiving and worship. I feel the emotion of of joy, of of happiness. Again, as Piper said, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. 
And truly, if I am satisfied in God for what he has done for me in Jesus Christ, then I will be thankful. I will be worshiping. I will be expressing that joy. I will be inviting others to join in that joyful thanksgiving and worship. Make a joyful noise. Normally, this is the language that you would find in the context of a, of a military conquest as a victorious army returns through the gates of the city with its captives and with its spoil. The cries and shouts of the people, cries of joy, cries of victory are, are raised up. Make a joyful noise. Express that joy. There was a Brahmin of an upper class in India who came to Christ. He embraced the gospel. He was baptized. And when he did that, he lost his possessions of his house, his fields, his wells, his wife, his children. That was the law of the caste system. It couldn't be changed. On being asked how he bore his sorrows... He replied, yes, I am often asked that, but I am never asked how I bear my joys, for I have joys with which a stranger cannot interfere. The Lord Jesus sought me. He found me, a poor, strayed sheep in the jungles, and he brought me to his fold, and he will never leave me. I have joys with which a stranger and no circumstance in life can interfere with. When we think of God's grace and his saving power, it should solicit, solicit from us a shout of victory, a shout of gladness, thanksgiving, and praise. Make a joyful noise. In the past, we've sung one of the, the songs by Shane and Shane. I love the words of it. When I, when I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord, how he picked me up, turned me around, how he set my feet on solid ground, that makes me want to shout, Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory, of all the honor, of all the praise. That makes me want to shout, Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all of the praise. Commentators disagree as to whether this joyful shout of victory is a shout that is anticipating a victory or celebrating one that has occurred. But for believers, we resolve that easily. It is both. We make a joyful noise because of the victory that has been accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ. And we make a joyful noise because we know that consummate victory, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, will take 
place. We live with hearts of praise and thanksgiving because we know what God has done and will do for us in Christ. Before his conversion, John Wesley was impressed by a conversation he had with a doorman who worked at his college. As Wesley talked to him, he found that the man had only one coat, that he had not eaten that day because he was so poor, and yet the man was overflowing with gratitude toward God. And Wesley said, you thank God when you have nothing to wear, nothing to eat, and no bed to lie on. What else do you thank him for? And the doorman answered, I thank him that he has given me life. He has given me my being. He has given me a heart to love him and a desire to serve him. Why should we make a joyful noise? Why should we shout hallelujah and give him glory? Because he saved me. He changed me. He forgave me. He loves me. He chose me. He secured me. He satisfies me and more. We express our joy with emotion and with actions. That are these verbs, serve and come and enter and bless. And some of them involve what we call evangelism. They, they constitute, constitute a call to all of the earth. Let all people in all places at all times know that this covenant, powerful Lord who saves people and makes them his own can be their God. We invite others to do what we are doing. We shout for joy. We serve with gladness. We come into his presence with joy. We enter his gates to worship him with hearts of thanksgiving. We bless his name for he is good. And when we do that, then we are prepared to invite others to do the same. Yes, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God wants us to be glad in him, to be joyful in him, to sing to him, to bless him, to declare our love for him. He wants us to find in Jesus Christ our greatest treasure and our deepest delight. Many of you know of Adoniram Judson, the missionary who initially went to Burma as a missionary. He burned with a desire to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, but it took a while for him to learn the language. And he so wanted to communicate this love of God in Christ that one day he went up to a Burmese man, and he embraced him. And that's all he could do was embrace him. And later that man became a believer, and he told this story. He said that the living Christ was so radiant in Mr. Judson's countenance 
that we called him Mr. Glory Face. Now, I imagine your face has been called a few things. <laughs> Grumpy, bitter, angry. Mr. Glory Face. We all face deep and dark moments in life. This psalm has no context for us to obey its seven commands. No limiting context. Even in those deep, dark moments of life, there should be something about what I know about who God is. He is good and He is faithful that should ring in my heart, that should stir in my heart joy and hope because I know that this one who created the world and who recreated me, this one who died and rose again, this one who has defeated sin and Satan and death, this one who is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and me at this moment, this one who is on the threshold of heaven, ready to return and deliver us from this evil world. This one is our God. Make a joyful noise. Shout hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because you are worthy. Let's pray together. Father, whether it's out of the good circumstances of our life this morning or the very difficult ones we live in, may we see that you, the covenant-making God, you are the only God, and you are good, and you are faithful, and the cross so powerfully and wonderfully demonstrates that. Give us eyes of faith to believe, to keep believing, to keep looking to the victory that Jesus Christ has won and the coming victory that will take place perhaps soon. Help us to look to Jesus Help us to glorify you by being satisfied in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.